So I feel like I'm constantly preaching to people, no matter what you do, whether you're in media or other things, learn business. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, we are talking to Michelle Lee, the editor-in-chief of Allure magazine. Michelle started her career in magazines working in publications such as Parenting, Glamour, and Paper. Fast forward to becoming one of the youngest editor-in-chiefs ever, humble brag, Michelle was an early adopter of digital strategy within more traditional print publications, nearly tripling visits to Allure.com since taking the lead there. She's a champion for diversity and says she wants to change the world by broadening the definition of beauty. We're going to get into that. Michelle, we are so excited to have you on the couch. Hi, ladies. Hi. So let's jump in. First, just skim your resume for us. Yes. I actually thought about this in advance because I know you asked this question. And <laughs> what I always half jokingly say to people is, how much time do you have? We don't if have you, a lot of time. I know. If you, if you look at my resume, it looks a little bit crazy. So I'll give you like the super Cliff Notes version of it. So in the first like seven years, I would say, I was a major job hopper. So that's why my resume is so long that if you go on my LinkedIn or something, if I went into detail, it would probably go on for like four or five pages. Mm -hmm. So someone very early on in my career had said to me, in order to move up in the media world, you have to move out. And I think I took it too literally. And I stayed in every (laughs) job for, like I said, the first seven years for only a year and in some cases less. So it did help me move very quickly up. The problem is with that is that it starts to look very, very bad Mm -hmm. and it starts to be a red flag to people. So I don't recommend doing that, but... We're going to come back to all of that. Oh, yes. (laughs) So the first half of my career was very much spent in print. I worked, like you said, um, at a lot of different places. I didn't necessarily have a specific beat at the time. I worked at parenting. I was on the launch team of Cosmo Girls. I worked in like parents, teens. Um, I was also on the launch team of Us Weekly and really had a very vibrant freelance career at the time too. So I always talked to my bosses at the time, wherever I was, about wanting to freelance at other places that were not competitive with whatever that was. So when I was at parenting, I wrote a lot for men's health, for GQ. At the time, the women's voice was very different. This is like more than 20 years ago. The women's voice in women's publishing was very earnest. And so men's was very like snarky and fun and clever. So I liked being able to like stretch that muscle a bit. And then flash forward second half of my career, I got much more into women's publishing, but then also into digital and into the business side. So most recently before Lore, I was the um, editor-in-chief and chief marketing officer at Nylon. And then about four and a half years ago, I got just a random email from Condé Nast. Um, and then I came over to Allure about four years ago, and that's where we are today. What is something people should know about you that they can't find on LinkedIn or Googling you? Um I think that looking at my LinkedIn or looking at my resume doesn't actually reflect how much of a generalist I was. I don't include all of it because it, again, looks kind of crazy. The types of things I used to write about, I wrote about everything from cars to extreme sports to finance to technology. And now I think when people think about me, they think, oh, she's like a beauty and fashion person. It is not 
at all how it was at first. Um, my first job was actually at a weekly newspaper. So I was doing hard news. And I look back and I think at the time I thought, God, I seem really unfocused and I should probably pick a topic. I know plenty of other people who started out in beauty and they stayed in that. For me, looking back though, I think it was actually a really positive thing that I see myself as a generalist now. Because in everything that I do, even though Allure is core beauty, it's also about so many other things, right? As women, we can have so many many different multi-layered interests. Um, and I think that's really great. And that everything does sort of intersect in a really interesting way. And then not something that people need to know, I guess, but I have done just, I don't know, very weird things when I was younger. I was an extra in, I was watching something about Jim Carrey recently. And it made me think about when I was in college, I was an extra in that movie, Ace Ventura, wait, Pet Detective. Wait, really? <laughs> that movie. Yes. Like, you were an Ace Ventura? <laughs> Ace Ventura. I don't think you can Which even scene? see me. Um, so at the very end, he's in like a stadium. I think it was like yeah. Dolphin Stadium because I lived in Florida yeah. at the time in Dolphin Stadium. Laces and out. one of my friends was like, do you want to go be an extra on this movie? And oh I was like, God. okay. So it was great because I saw the behind the scenes of how a movie is made. And the only other thing I really remember is having Krispy Kreme donuts later. Wait, this <laughs> is was so like, random. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I had a lot of like odd jobs when I was a kid. I worked concessions at a stadium also. I worked at a bookstore and swept floors. And I think about now, like those were some of the greatest times because you get to see all these different industries, even though like, I can't say I worked in movie production, I got to see what it was like to actually put together a movie and to see like some of the creative process. Well, I wasn't expecting that as an answer. So I'm just thinking. <laughs> and of course, I'm not going to put that on my LinkedIn. <laughs> you touched on a lot of things just now about career path and about being a generalist and moving around. And I think it's a lot of stuff that we've thought about for ourselves. A lot of our employees have, you know, we've talked to them about. And certainly I know a lot of our listeners think about, which is, is it okay to be a generalist? Do I need to really become an expert at something? And what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, for me, obviously, it worked out really well being a generalist. Um, I certainly understand that if somebody feels so passionately about something, I know plenty of people who, when they were kids, like elementary school level, they just felt this passion for working in the fashion industry. They sewed their own clothes. They just devoured every single fashion magazine. And to me, that makes sense then, that if you feel that way about something, that you're going to go and you're going to like live that passion. For me, I think that it's been really great for me being a generalist. But then also, once I decided when I was a sophomore to go into journalism, I felt like that was my path. And then within journalism, you can make that so many different things. But I also, probably within the past 10 years or so, realized that the path that journalists were on and editors was not going to be the path forever. Right. Like when I was starting out being an You're editor, preaching to the yes. choir right well, now. <laughs> absolutely. You should know that for sure. When I started out in media, being an editor in chief was completely 180 degrees different from what it is today. So had I stayed on the path and just thought, these are the only things that I need to do to become an editor-in-chief, to be successful for the rest of my life, I would have been setting myself up for failure. So I knew at some point within the past 10 years that I needed to learn digital, I needed to learn video, social, but then also to learn business. So I feel like I'm constantly preaching to people, no matter what you do, whether you're in media or other things, learn business. If I could go back to school, I think I would either get my MBA or if I could like literally get in a time machine, I would probably have like a major in journalism and a minor in business or vice versa. How do you learn business? Were you in your previous jobs going to your bosses and saying, can you teach me social? Can you teach me how to look at a P&L? Or were you doing this in your own time? Partly. <laughs> so part of it was born out of frustration. Like I said, I started out mostly in print and I was frustrated because the job that I was in, my 
CEO had no interest in digital whatsoever. I actually, I remember I took like an 11 by 17 sheet of paper and I was like, this is what our website should look like. And he was like, well, we shouldn't do it because it's going to cannibalize what we're doing in print. So no interest in it whatsoever. So I actually left that job and I very kind of famously took a pay cut in half and I went to a digital only place. And I was faking it till I make it because I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, right now it's awesome because you can learn so much online. So I taught myself SEO. Once I left that job, I taught myself how to fully design a responsive website. I taught myself CSS. I taught myself video editing and production. Um, I taught myself like sales, basically. I taught myself so many different things. At the same time, you can only kind of get so far with that too. So when I was at Nylon, I remember I had a really great discussion with my CEO where he wanted me to grow there. And he said, what can we do to kind of get you to that next level? You're already an editor-in-chief. It's like typically, where do you go from there? Mm -hmm. um, in like the old school media world, that was like the pinnacle. And you get put out to pasture after that. So for me, I was like, the thing I'm really frustrated with is that I sit in now these advertising sales meetings and marketing meetings, and there are terms that people are using that I don't actually understand. And I'll kind of nod my head and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my husband used to work in finance. So occasionally I would come home and say to him, what does this mean? Can you explain this to me? It's awkward sometimes with your spouse too, of like asking them too many questions and stuff. So I was very open with my CEO. And I said, I feel really self-conscious sometimes about not fully understanding the business side. So he was great and he's been an amazing mentor for me where he said, okay, I'm going to include you in some more of these meetings. You can come along with me. And he understood that I was creative in a way that some of the business people were not. So it was sort of mutually beneficial that he saw me as somebody who could be great on the marketing side and building the brand in a way on a business side that wasn't really being done. So he eventually promoted me to head of brand strategy, also um, on top of being editor-in-chief. And then eventually I became chief marketing officer there too, as the world of branded content started to develop. So I kind of wore these two hats when I was there where one of them was core editorial and then one of them was white labeling things for certain brands. Because at Nylon, like we had a very specific aesthetic that was very Gen Z, like very cool that a lot of brands really wanted to hop onto. And they weren't necessarily sure like who the right photographers and stylists were to do those things. So we built this really strong branded content business. And that kind of gave me this bug of wanting to work on the business side too. It's kind of like hearing what we felt better articulated back to us. <laughs> Because everything that you went through are things that prompted us to leave and start the skim. So, Danielle, your birthday's coming up. It is. You know what I don't want? No, but I know I, you're going to get no, I got, No, I got you something. Is it a picture of you? No. In a frame? No. Is it a picture of me? It's a picture of us. <laughs> <laughs> Something new and different um, because you don't have any. What's it from? It's from Framebridge, who's our favorite. Uh, it's so easy. All I had to do was upload photos from our beautiful Instagram account. And I just went to framebridge.com. They send you packaging if you wanted to mail in the actual physical piece. Um, but I didn't want to touch my collection. Um, but you can preview the item online in any frame style. Super easy to work with the talented designers. The prices start at $39 and shipping it, is free. It's so nice to know what you spent on my birthday gift. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but 
If you haven't used FrameBridge yet, get started today. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code SKIM, S-K-I-M-M, to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code SKIM. Again, that's framebridge.com, promo code SKIM. One of the things that we struggle with is running a company where we have a lot of people that are greener in their career, who love the creative aspect. And we say to them, you have to learn the business side. And I feel like there is sometimes a stigma of this insecurity, right? Like if you're a creative, that's kind of what you do and you want to be pure, but it's only to get you so far. How have you been able to mentor people that are younger journalists. I think it's so interesting and rare that you were able to play the part of CMO and also have been editor-in-chief. Yeah. Oh, it's a very rare thing. And especially anyone who grew up in the media industry at the time that I did, because, you know, we always used to talk about the separation of church and state. And I think a lot of that also extends to our childhood, that especially as women, it's like a lot of us say, oh, you're either good at math or you're a creative person. Our whole team behind you is nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's not true. It's not true. We've been told that. And then we start to convince ourselves of that. And it's absolutely not true because you can teach yourself anything. I think at some point in my own life, probably in high school, I told myself I'm not good at math. And then I I thought, okay, well, business is all math. So I should just not even care about business. I'm just going to be a creative. Oh my God. This is like, like, yeah. Right. And it's so not true. I really wish we knew you when we were going through all (laughs) Yeah. Well, see, now now we can all share and commiserate. My sister graduated from Duke with a degree in math, but she's also an extremely creative person. And my daughter is also the same way at 11, where I see like she has She's very, very like intellectual and very logical about things, loves math, but also loves drawing and loves writing and reading and stuff. So to me, those are two examples of where you can have both of those things. I think I was sort of forced into it in a way because I see this future of where the media landscape is changing. I think that as much as I want to believe that the editor-in-chief role will go on for a hundred more years, I don't know if that's the case. And even if it does, it'll be such a different situation that the analogy I always use is that I work at a big company right now. And so technically, yes, there is a business team and there's an editorial team. If we were completely independent, though, as you guys are, would I ever imagine a world of being just the creative and not caring about the business side? I wouldn't. It makes no sense. So even though I'm at a larger corporation, why should I act like that? Like we should all be acting like startup founders. We should all be acting like entrepreneurs, even if we're not and we're working at a more established company. I do want to answer your question about the mentoring younger people too. I think a lot of it is leading by example, telling your own story so that they understand that how you got to where you are is that by understanding the business side more. Um, We also, our team does work on branded content. So I think a lot of them are very interested in it also because I think that they're seeing that in the world, working for brands, even if you're not a little or, there's a lot of beauty editors now that go to work at beauty brands. We had someone who went to go work at Fenty, someone who went to go work at Glossier. So it's that the media world is changing. It's not that jobs are disappearing. They're just kind of changing now. My very first editor-in-chief who I ever worked with in New York was Ruth Whitney, who was the longtime editor-in-chief of Glamour. And so at that time, Glamour was the biggest, most amazing, like just money flush magazine. Her job, though, was running a magazine. I don't think was like super involved in the business side because that's not what the editor-in-chief did. It was long before 
the digital world. Um, it was long before people were doing a lot of other business extensions. So today, I think the role of an editor-in-chief is almost more of like a CEO. I touch everything in our business. So we not only have the magazine, we've got the website, we've got social media, video, but also other businesses too. So we're looking at consumer events. We've got the Allure Beauty Box um, and any other things too. I mean, I have so many meetings with brands. We're very fortunate because the beauty world right now is just exploding so much. So even though the media world has been pretty tumultuous in the past 10 years, the beauty world is exploding so much. It's very exciting to think about all the different ways that we can think about where Allure can go. When I first started here, I think my first year, I was trying to convince everyone we're not Allure magazine, we're Allure a media brand. And now I very much think of ourselves as we're not a media brand, we're a brand. Mm-hmm. When you look at your team today or even for yourself, what is the skill set that you would encourage people to get today so that they can still have all doors open to them 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people don't emphasize the people skills enough. And so I was saying to you before, so I'm a mom, I've got a 14-year-old and 11-year-old. And so my son, Ethan, who's my oldest, every single year in elementary school on his report card, he would get is a little too social, is a little too social. And I knew his teachers were trying to say it in a negative way. But my husband and I were like, that is not a negative thing. Like, I think half of going to school is learning Mm -hmm. what you need to learn and like the curriculum. But then the other half is navigating people and understanding how to work things where you're managing up to your teacher. What does that mean? Managing up, I think, is a different skill from managing down and managing sideways. I think managing up is if we think about it in terms of how I have to deal with my bosses. It's about learning how to be respectful, but also being forceful enough and not being just a yes person. I've seen in many years of my career, people who have made their way to the top by being yes people. And so we are very like adamant with our kids. That is not the way that we do things. And I actually think that if you have a great boss, they respect having your opinion and they don't want you just to yes them. Um, So I think that's been a skill that honestly I've had to learn over the years. I think when I was a very young editor, I totally didn't get that. I was a yes person and I was just nervous about giving my opinion. And now, like as I've gotten older, I realize that people hire you for a reason. They want your opinion. And I see this among young people all the time that they're too nervous or too shy to say what they actually think. And I want to hire people who have a strong opinion and who are not going to be assholes about it. I want to have people who I can bounce real ideas off of. What is your reaction when you see people's resumes that they've moved around every year? Well, now it's a red flag for me. <laughs> and I will hear them out. Like if, if let's say, which I have on my resume, I bounced around a ton in the very beginning, but then I had some stints where I was somewhere for seven years and I've been at Allure for four years. So if it seems like there's this path where someone kind of got over that, I think I'm okay with it. Um, I will hear them out. The problem is now as someone who hires someone, I can so see the other side of it that it's a bummer if you hire someone, you train them, and then within a year they're Mm -hmm. gone. And we all know how hard it is to hire good people. So it's time consuming for you as like a hiring manager to have to go through that whole process of interviewing and hiring and figuring out are they right for the culture. So I do look at it as a red flag right now and... um, definitely not a positive thing. When you came into Allure, you followed Linda Wells, who had run the publication for 24 years. How did you integrate with the team? How did you get their trust? It was the hardest thing. I was so nervous. I remember the first day having to address the team, and it was absolutely the most nervous I've ever been because Linda is 
a hundred percent a total idol to me within the industry. I've been following her career for so long. I have loved Allure as a brand for such a long time, but I also had this really strong conviction that I could do a lot with it. And so I had been interviewing, I probably met with like 10 to 12 people of like the higher ups at Condé Nast before I actually got hired. And so I had done this presentation for them about how I would change the brand. And obviously I was starting from a place of it was such a strong brand already. Like it had so much brand trust and everything, but I did think that there were some things that we could modernize and we could improve. First of all, it was very much known as just a magazine. So we needed to really extend ourselves into other platforms. And then secondly, diversity, which you mentioned in the intro, I think was a very big thing that it wasn't just a lore, it was women's media in general, and also the beauty and fashion industry in general, that four years ago, it's kind of crazy to think, was not a diverse place at all. And I don't just mean racial and ethnic diversity. It was not diverse with body types, with age, with gender, with anything. And within the past two years, I would say the industry has changed dramatically, um, but that was not the case when I started. So I feel like I came in with having these really exciting plans. It's not easy though, when you're coming into a staff where they're used to things running in a certain way. And I think within media, it's very easy to get kind of stuck in a a routine of saying, we've always done this story this way. We're kind of going to do it this way. So it was a lot of constantly talking, especially to my senior staff um, about this is what the vision is and just being almost like a broken record and saying, we need more of this. We need more of this. It took a while though. I would say my first year was a lot of convincing people, bringing people along. But then once you get that little taste of success, I think people start to really understand. And of course, you know, whenever there's a new leader coming on, there have to be some staff changes too. You have to give people time and assess who's going to get on board. And unfortunately, some people don't get on board and you need to sometimes bring in some new blood. We are always together and we are also always in transport. And so we are often always in an Uber to get from one place to another. And we also have very quick thumbs. We do have very quick thumbs. <laughs> Which is helpful because Go getting on. an Uber oh, yes. takes just seconds. See where I was going with no, that? No, that was he good. Was, yeah. No, that was good. We are, uh, as longtime Uber users, we are big fans of how committed Uber is to safety and to continuously raising the bar to help make safer journeys for everybody. All drivers are background checked before their first ride. What I didn't know is Uber also rescreens drivers every year and uses tech to look for any issues that might come up in between. That makes me feel better. Uber has introduced a brand new safety feature called Ride Check. Using GPS and smartphone sensors, Ride Check can detect if a trip goes unusually off course and check in to provide support, which makes me feel better because no one wants to be in that car when it goes off course. So thank you, Uber. Ride Check is just one of the ways Uber is committed to safety. Learn more at uber.com slash safety. Again, that's uber.com slash safety. For those who are listening who work at companies that are either maybe more traditional or who haven't necessarily evolved yet, what advice would you give around how to approach their bosses or their place of work to evolve their brand, their company, how their company does things? It's hard because I think a lot of it is the way that people do it, right? Like I think that one, you have got to be killing it in your core job already. I think a lot of times people get very impatient. I have people sometimes who are like at an assistant level and they're like, by next year, I wanna be a director. And you're like, that's great, but you have to be killing it at what you're doing already. 
I think it is like in big group meetings also, don't be shy. I have a bunch of people who I've worked with in the past who I always refer to as like the quiet warriors. And I used to be that. I used to think that if I just quietly do my work and I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to eventually be seen by somebody. And it's not that way a lot of times. And it's kind of what I was saying about like the social skills, that if you learn how to in a positive way, impress people and to brag about your achievements and to brag about what you're doing, not in an annoying way, um, that's going to bring you really far. So I think it is making sure that you have enough face time with the people who matter. Don't be shy in meetings, have great ideas and do great work. What's the cover story that you've done that you're most proud of? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> so my first year Again, I think we were getting up to speed on a lot of things. There was a lot of foundation building. I look at 2017 as the year that a lot of things fell into place. So the first cover that we worked on where I felt like we are really making a big impact was April 2017. And we had, you know, everyone for the longest time has had all celebrities on covers. And you start to see the same celebrities over and over and over again to the point of where you could probably write like a really funny cover story that's just like the cliche of magazine cover stories. So for this cover story, we wanted to do something about diversity. And again, 2017, like not a time that people were really talking about this. So we had three models of color on the cover. And instead of just interviewing the three of them, what I said to the team was, I want to get as many women of color who work in fashion and beauty that we possibly can interview and talk to them about like really raw personal stories of racism, colorism, diversity, and what it's been like for them. So they were like, okay, we're going to do it. So the whole team went out. They got a ton of different stories from people. And we ended up with 41, which sounds like a random number, but it was great. And all the stories were super strong. And that story got so much pickup because the cover itself was beautiful. But I had so many people messaging me, coming up to me on the street even, saying, I never thought I would see this. And thank you so much. I'm crying. I'm buying an issue. I want to keep it for my kids who are younger now, but just to show them like that something like this can be done. So I think for a lot of the team, that was their first taste of, whoa, this has made a really big cultural impact on things. And then later that year in July, this was like the height of the Trump travel ban. We had Halima Adin, a beautiful model in her hijab on the cover with the line, this is American beauty now. And it's been such a great example for me of, it was a beautiful beauty cover but there was also a stronger message behind it. What I want Allure to be is that, that people think of beauty sometimes as a very shallow thing, and it can absolutely be that, but it can also be something that talks about who we are, about our identity, about everything about our physical appearance. Um, and then later that year in September, we had Helen Mirren on the cover, and we had the line, my the end of anti-aging. Oh my God, well, for so many reasons. Love that. When I found out that we got Helen Mirren for the cover, I normally don't write cover stories. Like I haven't written a long story in such a long time, but I was like, can I write that story? <laughs> so yeah, I did the interview with her over breakfast and she was amazing. Like, oh just God, so I want to do a podcast just asking you about oh your breakfast. God. With I know. I'm like, I remember what she ate. She had like scrambled eggs. There was some ketchup involved. <laughs> I just picture her just like having a cigarette and a whiskey over yeah. breakfast. <laughs> like, I, she was just so cool and so real. And so that also we announced during that issue that we were banning the term anti-aging. And it was another example of where we made real global change with that because there was a referendum that was put out in the UK to ban anti-aging like among the whole country. I don't think it passed, but people were talking about it across the globe. You've gotten feedback that you and by extension of you, Allure, should stay out of politics. Yes. 
What do you think about that? I think it's ridiculous. Um, We definitely, especially in 2017, because I think we were real fired up. um, I remember, I think it was the February issue, because it was my first editor's letter that I was writing after Trump got elected, and I was feeling very emotional about it. And I wrote about my experiences with racism and about some of the things that I was seeing shared on social media. It was getting really heated that suddenly I felt like, The racism that I had experienced when I was a kid felt like it was getting better, but it was really all just boiling up under the surface. And I was really scared the fact that I saw it coming back up again because of this election. And so I wrote about that and I got mostly like positive feedback, but I definitely got some handwritten letters. I got some tweets directed at me being like, well, I'm really angry now. I'm canceling my subscription. Don't get political, stick to beauty, blah, blah, blah. And so I was very forward at the time of saying, to me, I understand that you can view that as being political, but standing up for people's rights, standing against racism, standing up for women, everything else, to me should not be seen as a political issue. These are human issues. Um, And for anyone who's offended by me talking about my personal experience with racism, maybe I don't want you to necessarily be following us then. And I, I, you know, from a business perspective, I probably shouldn't be saying that. But I do feel strongly that the things that we're saying, we're not suggesting someone vote for this person, vote for that person. We're not writing full political articles. But I do view beauty and our lane as something that does intersect with politics, as does almost everything in culture. When you think about beauty, it is in my definition, everything about your external appearance, which has to do with your skin color, it has to do with your gender, with your body, so many things. And those are things that, as we know, especially in this current administration, have been pulled into the political sphere. So we 100% as women should be allowed to talk about those things. You talked about the concern on the business side. And I think when you go through the covers that stood out to you, Um, you were changing things. And obviously there is great inclusivity and trends in the beauty industry, but change also means uncertainty and potential for risk, which the business side doesn't always like. Did you get pushback? Was there criticism from the audience? And how did you handle it? It's in my nature, for better or worse, that if there were 99 positive comments, it's that one negative one that sticks out. Um, Primarily, all of the feedback has been incredibly positive. But yes, absolutely, I got some of the ugliest, nastiest tweets after having Halima on the cover. Um, That being said, our business side has been incredibly supportive of everything. And I think that in the media world now, success is something that is measured very differently. Magazines used to live or die by their newsstand numbers. Today, success is partially driven by that, but it's also partially driven by how well did it do on social media? How much of a cultural impact did it make? And to me, I look at what we're doing at Allure as the long game. So I don't get too hung up on, did this one thing perform? Because I understand that we're creating an overall arc of what we're doing. And I didn't necessarily see that until maybe a couple years in, but now I really do see it as like, how are we changing the cultural conversation around things? And I think because I've now been here for four years, we've been doing this for a while, it's an easier story for the business side to tell, whereas they're not looking so specifically as like one narrow thing. We're going to go to our favorite segment, which is the lightning round. Okay, this is a very difficult segment. Um, We're going to ask you rapid-fire questions. You have to respond as quickly as possible. Oh, God, okay. First job? Uh, Babysitting and folding jeans at Macy's. Worst job? Folding jeans at Macy's. (laughs) (laughs) Last book you read? Last book I read, Jonathan Van Ness's book. Last show you binge-watched? 
Um, I'm currently watching The Great British Baking Show. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. So good. What drives you? Um, my family, but then also wanting to change the cultural conversation. Worst professional mistake you've made? Hiring people who I had a gut feeling that I shouldn't. First call when you get good news? My husband and then my parents. What about bad news? My husband and my parents. <laughs> When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Um, I feel like I negotiate for myself almost every day, but I actually have something coming up probably in about a week that I have to negotiate for myself about. And I know I'm supposed to do this fast, but um, I've gotten so much better about it because I understand that you can't be too nice about it. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Follow Allure by Allure. Subscribe to the Allure Beauty Box and um, follow me on Instagram at Hey Michelle Lee. You have great Instagram. You, thank you. You always have fun nails. Oh, thank you. Um, wait, <laughs> I have just, this is my shameless question. Um, what is the one beauty product I need? Oh, the one beauty product. I'm very obsessed with Drunk Elephant Sea Firma. Yes, yes that's so it. are we. Oh my God. It's yes. so good. It's, it's been, so good. It's, it's been one of those so products good. that has changed my skin. Oh, Michelle, you're making my day. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much. Uh, congrats on everything and good thank luck. You. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 